Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, Blog Talk Radio listeners out there to this Saturday, October 19th, to Off the Shelf. We are so happy to be here with you, and I always say this is our 10th year, our 10th year, and our, our special guest today has been here before. We had him back because he's such a wonderful guest, and he has a new book out, which we want to talk about and share with you. I think at our last show when he was on, uh, we talked briefly about his book, but now that it's out, we can discuss it more in depth. And as I always say, I thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us here this morning and hope you are getting ready for the winter holidays because they will be here so soon. November is right around the corner. I always like to introduce myself to those who are on the internet, I mean, you could you could be either you could get into off the shelf so many different ways through the chat room. You can get in on your cell phone, you could get in on the computer, or you could just dial into off the shelf. So there's just so many ways to access the show. And so if you're somebody to our loyal listeners, I always say thank you. I so appreciate you. But to those it's your first time, I'd like to introduce myself. And so I'm your host, Denise Turney, and as I always say, I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and this this, this weekend it'll be the Cowboys and the Eagles. be interesting to see how that turns out. And I do, I do, I do, I do encourage you, don't let another day pass before you pick up a copy of my new book, Long Walk Up. And I tell you, you get mystery, you get such wonderful friendships and romance and high chasings that keep you on the edge of your seat. You'll want to know what happens to Raymond and Brenda and and uh, um, my latest book. So I encourage you to pick up a copy of it. You can get it at, uh, at any bookstore online or offline. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it. Just tell them you want to get Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can get a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And thank you for for your support and for getting a copy of Love Pour Over Me. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And as I told you earlier, our guest has been on the show before, but I know some, we, we have new listeners who join off-the-shelf every every week and we have many many loyal listeners so to those who maybe didn't catch the last time he was on or for those who are just tuning in to off the shelf for the first time i do want to introduce him and his name is ken mcalpine he's the author of the books fog islands apart a year on the edge of civilization and off season discovering america on winter shore his new book which we're going to talk about in depth here on Off the Shelf today, is Together We Jump. And, and uh, he's also a magazine writer. He's He travels a lot. So if you, you when, when we start talking about his books, you'll see that connection. And during today's show, we're also going to cover some steps you can take to launch your own successful magazine writing career. Um, and for his magazine writing, Ken has earned uh, the Lowell Thomas – He's on three Lowell Thomas Awards for travel writing, and I'm sure he would absolutely love it if you visited him online at KenMcAlpine.com. He has a really nice website. If you're using your computer to tune in to Off the Shelf, you can go over to his website now as you listen to today's interview. And his website is uh, www, although you really don't need that, and it's K-E-N-M-C 
A-L-P-I-N-E.com. KenMcAlpine.com. K-E-N-M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E.com. Again, I think he has a a fantastic website that I think you'd enjoy visiting. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Ken. (laughs) Thanks, Denise. I had a big smile on my face. That introduction always makes me sound way grander than I am. No, uh, no, no. I really appreciate you having me back. It's... uh, I had so much fun with you the last time. Hey, congratulations on your book. That's fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I um, No, I was over at your website, you know, doing the research for today's show, and I think you might may have updated it or something because it looked a little different to me, but it looked nice before, but I, I enjoyed being over there again uh, this well, I gotta, time. I have to fess up, to be honest. I'm technologically inept, but I have a friend who's, a genius on a million fronts. His name is Hank Tovar, and he has a company that's called Pictures That Move, but he's just, uh, mostly he's an incredible friend, and he does all that stuff for me. I have an author Facebook page, and that that sort of thing, and he updates. I don't even know a lot of times what's happening on the website, but I'm really active on the Facebook page, uh, posting columns and things. But it's just a, it's a great, great world for reaching people these days. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. kind of an old guy. I'm 54, and, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it was uh, yeah, much very harder different. to reach out to yeah. readers. Yeah, and mm-hmm. now it's, it's so great. I mean, I post columns on this uh, author Facebook page, and, you know, I hear from people uh, around the world I mean, right. it's, it's just, it, it just is fantastic. So to aspiring writers, you know, I often say, geez, there's no better time than now. I mean, your chance, it's just the chances, it's a wide open field. For yeah, I agree. But, yeah. yeah, you don't have to wait for the major, major publishers to come around. You can still connect with readers and build those relationships now. Um, I know we touched on, like I said earlier, on Together We Jump, very briefly during your previous off-the-shelf appearance, um, and I just want to look forward to, you know, diving a little more deeply into the story today. But for those off-the-shelf listeners who maybe missed the previous show, I'd like to give them a little backstory on our guests. So I wanted to begin by asking you, what single event encouraged you to become a writer? You know, it's it's. Um, I love that question. It, it's uh, it was actually kind of a long winding path because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But uh, like a lot of people, I think. But I, I uh, as a kid, I was an avid, avid reader. I just loved to read, and I loved how stories just took you away. And I think that never left me. And uh, I went. I was fortunate enough to go to college. I, I got a degree in environmental science, and I decided I didn't want to count uh, sow bugs in a square yard of grass and <laughs> I just I worked as a professional lifeguard for a while and actually there's a lot of interesting careers in environmental science I basically didn't want to go back to graduate school and I sort of wandered a bit and then I uh, I actually to make a long story short got a small assignment for a local weekly in a town called Ocean New Jersey to cover an ocean swim and uh, I wrote the article and the editor liked it and uh it was fun to do, and he ended up hiring me, and one thing led to another, and poof, 25 years later, here I am. But wow. I, I think the thing that's encouraging to, to any uh, reader is there's no, or, or aspiring writer, is there's, there's no really one path. I think the one thing you really have to have, Denise, and you know this as well as I do, is perseverance. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, you get kicked around a little bit, 
But yeah. there isn't there isn't a single path, and and actually, you know, this is always strikes me as funny. Uh, I won an award from the Columbia School of Journalism. I can't. I'm sure I couldn't get into the Columbia School of Journalism, which is <laughs> to say that I'm not academically schooled, although I took some journalism courses at the University of Virginia. But um, you know, I just I learned my craft by doing it, mm-hmm. um, and I think the reading planted all those seeds. I, I read a lot of books when I was younger and still read a lot, and those bits stick, the good bits, hopefully. You know, you can learn from the greats. So, yeah, for, uh, people think, oh, my gosh, I don't have a degree. Magazines never ask me where I went to school, uh, you know, or whether I have a degree in journalism. They just want to see your work. And if your work yeah. is good, then you'll get work from them. I would agree with that. Very interesting, though, that somebody came up to you and asked you, to cover a story. I know everybody would love for something like that to happen to them, and that's how they get their career launched. Like, it's something that almost happenstance. You don't even feel like you play a role in it, and you're just reaping all the rewards. I wanted to ask Yeah, there's you a that. lot of serendipity in this life, isn't there? I mean, yes. uh, you know, you, you, can, you, you have to, I guess, uh, and again, I'm trying to be better with this, as we were saying before we went on the air. The promotion part is hard for me, but with promotion, you make some of your own serendipity. But a lot of times... Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you need to be ready, but then you also, as, as you and I both well know, have to persevere because it's not easy, and it, it hasn't gotten easier. I mean, magazine work is it's competitive, just like anything else. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, books very competitive, just like anything else, and that's not mm-hmm. meant to be discouraging at all. Because I'm a delusional optimist. It's just meant to prepare people. I think sometimes I talk to groups and you know, of aspiring writers, and right away somebody wants to be published in, like, National Geographic or something like that. And right. the hard fact is, you know, you need a track record yep. before you approach a major magazine like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but anything is possible with perseverance and, and a degree of talent. I mean, everybody's not made out to be a writer, although a right. lot of people are. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to me to see where some writers come from. Their backgrounds are even stranger than mine. Yeah, and that's it. Can you tell us where you grew up and what life was like for you as a kid? Yeah, I, I had a really blessed uh, childhood. Uh, my father worked for the Foreign Service, and uh, we lived in Asia a lot. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong. Uh, we lived in Singapore, uh, Laos, Indonesia, and we'd go back and forth four years overseas and then two years in the States until my father got his next uh assignment and it was always funny when we were in the states and uh i'd come home from school and he'd be sitting at the table with language cards and i'd say what language is that and he would say it's lao and i'd go into my room and pull out the atlas and look up where laos was and that's where we were off to wow um, yeah it was i mean my wife uh kathy who's uh most amazing person I've ever met, grew up in the same town her whole life, so we sort of have two different perspectives, both wonderful. But as a writer, I think that really helped me. Of course, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I was, you know, 12 years old and playing Little League baseball, but you absorb more than you think. And I think, you know, I picked up experiences along the way of all those, you know, different places. And it's funny what ends up in books. And the magazine assignments, as you said, I've been really fortunate to do a lot of travel writing, so... You know, the experience that I've had on actual assignments has, you know, generated fodder for fiction, too. But I had a really wonderful childhood with a a chance to see, you know, 
parts of Asia. I've never been to Europe. There's lots I haven't seen, but uh, but it was a great childhood. I wouldn't change it for the world. Wow. Now, how have you used your experiences? You said you do some travel writing. The traveling you did as a child. How have you used some of those experiences that you have with your family living overseas and traveling as a novelist? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it often comes up. It, as you know, books are really interesting because you never really know where they come from, or at least I don't. Um, like Together We Jump is a sum of so many things, you know, some of my life experiences, some of the chance encounters, people I've met while traveling, that sort of thing. And, and sometimes it's little tiny bits and snippets and that sort of thing, or, or sometimes it's large parts. Like uh, in Together We Jump, there's a numerous scenes in a place called Pele Lu, which was a little island in the South Pacific that played a pivotal role in World War II. I mean, there was a horrific battle there. And part of that is in Together We Jump, the, the main character, Pogue Whithouse, uh, fights in those battles. And I actually had the fortune to travel there for a magazine assignment and see Pele Lu, which is one of the most amazing places it's 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 as if the war ended. It's this little island, tropical island now, when the war was going on and the, the Japanese, we were fighting the Japanese there, they, they pretty much raised the whole island. I mean, literally burned it to the ground. But now it's all, all the growth has grown back. Obviously, it's been quite some time, but it's like they just up and left. I mean, there's tanks in the jungle. I, I wow. actually took a tour with this guy who is probably the preeminent historian on that battle, and we walked, it was eerie, Denise. I mean, we, you know, we passed tanks. There were live grenades. We walked into the caves on that particular island and elsewhere, too. The Japanese, when they actually were losing the war, they holed up in these caves. And that's why Pele Lu was such a terrible battle. It took a long time to, uh, for it to end, basically. And, but anyhow, these caves, the Japanese were in the caves, and the, uh, you know, the U.S. forces were trying to get them out. And the caves, you can still walk in there and... And there's there's phonograph records and and uh, live you know grenades and the tops of the caves are burnt black because sadly with war they they mm. turn flamethrowers inside the caves but it's it's like stepping back in time and and that made a huge impression when I was there I just I couldn't obviously that's not something you forget yeah when I was starting to write together we jump I thought okay I'm gonna make this protagonist a World War II veteran, among other things. And part of the reason behind that is he has a lot of, uh, you know, he had a difficult early life and he's sort of trying, it's a chance for him uh, at a second chance, but he has to try to sort of not put these things behind him because he never put something like that behind him, but, um, you know, he has to sort of address these things. And there was nothing more dramatic than this, these battles on Pele Lu. So, you know, that played into, you know, that quickly became fiction, and, and it was easy in that case. You know, I did a lot of research, too, but I'd seen these things and smelled them and touched them, and, you know, that really can be dramatic. Yeah, and, it's, and I know some of your other, your other, another book we discussed is based on, in part, some real-life events. Now, just shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to give our off-the-shelf listeners a treat, so I'm just going to do a little a short reading, and it begins... In my favorite dream, I swim easily in green waters just below the surface so that the sky ripples overhead, the white clouds like bed sheets in the wind. I am underwater, but the river still sings on the surface, softer, dreamier, more distant. 
yet infinitely more comforting. I sense something timeless beyond mankind's stumblings, passed to me in a whisper I cannot grasp, but it soothes me nonetheless. I am gripped by something that swings on the very hinges of the earth, something so large it erases any urge to conquer, to compete, to dominate, to prove, to possess, to hate, to question. Now I wanted to ask you, is that the beginning of your new book, Together We Jump? That's a part of it. Actually, it's funny. It's, uh, it's always so hard, Denise, and you probably run into this. That's actually uh, a dream that the, the protagonist, Pogue Whithouse, has a lot because as a kid, he uh, rode sea turtles um, in the Indian River in Florida. It's always so hard to explain a book. You know, you spend like five, six years writing it, and you have about 30 seconds to explain it. But that is uh, a dream that he has often, and it's, a, it's about the turtles, and, and turtles figure prominently in the book, both actually, and they're kind of a metaphor for uh, a lot of things. But actually, and this is, again, interesting, the idea of actually swimming with sea turtles came to me when I was working on another book of mine called The Off-Season Discovering America on Winter Shore, and I visited with a gentleman in a place called, uh, well, now it's Cocoa Beach, Florida, but long ago it was called Sharps. And when they were kids, what they would do would be they'd take these little plastic hooks and they would swim out into the Indian River and they would try to hook these green sea turtles, which actually breed uh, nearby. And they'd hook the turtles and they would ride, they had these rafts and they'd ride, you know, the turtle would be hooked to the hook and, uh, and the turtle didn't suffer anything and it would pull the raft and, and I never forgot that and obviously it's, it's kind of different on uh, the day mm-hmm. and age before Game Boy and uh, yeah, so that plays a large role uh, his, in the fictional account this old Whithouse grows up in Florida and uh, in Sharps and uh, they ride the sea turtles and it's actually a really wonderful part of his life, and then things start to go bad for him. And mm. so the dream that you just read is sort of a, an escape in a way. But I love the book because it's all about second chances. You know, I, I think the one thing that was always sort of rumbling around in my head was the fact that we only get one chance at life, but we mm-hmm. get more than one chance with our life. Right. I think it's true that we all have something we wish we had done differently, and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe if we have the chance to change it, we might not have it take a substantial amount of courage and maybe an almost wholesale change of character. And that's sort of what this book's about, this gentleman ah. realizes, you know, he's got, this is it. You know, you got one life to live, and only he can make these changes. And it turned out to be a pretty poignant book. And uh, I don't plot things out, so that's kind of fun, too. You're not really sure what's, hopefully, what's going to happen, and there's some surprises and Etc. So, for our listeners, I know one of one reader of uh, Together We Jump, and we're going to discuss the book, you know, in more detail. But she says, "I want to relay this about Together We Jump. I loaned it to my dear neighbor next door, uh, who a woman named Nicole, who reads even more than another woman she knows, and across a wide spectrum. Being somewhat tentative about how my own reading." proclivities translate for more my more well-read friends i'm a bit nervous about recommending to themselves that set therefore i was blown away with nicole's reaction in fact i was so bored over by her praise i thought she was pulling my leg but no joke it sent shivers up my spine first she thinks 
that the author we're interviewing uh, needs a new agent. She really just loved, loved, loved the book, and she said she could go on and on and on. She was very moved, uh, the reader Nicole, by um, by your work, Ken. So I wanted, I wanted to, uh, before we go into Together We Jump, we talked about, read a little bit about the book, and you told us about the character. It's a, a scene from a dream he's having. And now we're seeing that readers are finding the story hard to put down and very poignant. And I know myself, I've read some of your some of your work, parts of it, and I absolutely love, love, love um, your style of writing. I wanted to ask you if you could just describe, you did briefly for off-the-shelf listeners, but if you could give them a little more in-depth, I don't want to give the story away, but the main character, uh, can you give us his name again? I know you said sure. that he grew up in Florida. Give us a little bit more of his background. And what is he doing at the very start of the story? Well, yeah, he uh, his name is Pogue Whithouse, and uh, he uh, it's basically a cross-country trip. I mean, he uh, it, it goes back and forth between his current life and his past life. And his past life is uh, really quite amazing and based on a number of things, including uh, an uncle that I had who fought uh, bravely in a number of wars and never talked about it like a lot of those veterans, uh, they didn't, and uh, sort of the quiet generation. But, yeah, it starts out with uh, him making a decision. He's living in San Francisco. Uh, He's 85 years old, and the horizon is closer than, you know, (laughs) he knows. okay. And he doesn't have a whole lot of time left for second chances. But it's funny, the book's not about an 85-year-old man. I mean, the trip across the country is obviously taken by an 85-year-old man, and along the way he meets this amazing uh, cast of characters, and it's kind of a look at an underside of our country that uh, will make you feel good about the country. And I've taken numerous cross-country trips, and some of these characters are based on people who actually exist. Okay. story goes back and forth into his past, you know, when he was young, and it addresses numerous things that I can't really talk about. One of them is the death of a brother, and things that he, again, you can never get past, you know, you never forget, but he needs to move on. And Mm. it's a really, I think in the end, it's a happy ending, and uh, a sweet story, and people have really responded, which is it really makes you feel good. I mean, you know how mm-hmm. it is. You, you write a book and, uh, you know, you're in this, you're all by yourself and, and you don't know if it's, if people will like it, basically. I mean, you, you write something, you think, well, that's pretty good. And sometimes you think, well, that needs work. And so you go back and rework it. But you don't have any feedback. And every writer goes through that. Uh, my wife obviously looks at my things. When she has a chance, she's a busy school teacher. And I have a couple of friends I rely on for feedback. They're really knowledgeable readers. But, uh, yeah, so the response has been really nice. And, and I have to tell you, I'm grateful to you because, you know, you helped launch the book with a nice review. So I, I haven't forgotten that. And reviews, it's funny, they um, – I have uh, mixed feelings about reviews. You should They're great. I mean, they can really help you, but I just think, you know, you, they, one person's opinion, yeah, one person yeah, tells you're the yeah. greatest writer. Somebody said, this book is like the opening is as good as the grapes of wrath. And I remember thinking, I'm not Steinbeck. <laughs> you know, so I thought, well, that, you know, that made me feel good. 
but uh-huh. that one person's sort of exaggerated opinion. And on the flip side, if you get a bad review or, you know, and that happens, it's hard. You know, everybody yeah. is the yeah. next person, but it's just one person's opinion. But anyhow, the long yeah. and the short of it is I appreciated your taking the time. And, um, yeah, and the reviews have been good, both professionally and then, which means more to me from readers. I mean, I'm getting amazing mm-hmm. notes from people saying, you know, just really, really, really nice things, and it makes me yeah. feel good. And I think a lot of people, the bottom line is people can relate to it because, like I said, you know, we all have things that we think, gosh, I wish I might have done that differently. And the fact is there may be a chance to change things. It's going to take a little bit of gumption. And Poe right. else, this character, you know, pulls himself up by his bootstraps and does it. And that sort of mm-hmm. gives you Yes. Other readers have said, like, second chances are good. Like you said, we all need them. And we all certainly would like, although you can't go back and redo something you've already done, but yeah. just a chance right. to make it right. And uh, another uh, reader said uh, how perfectly you write about the tenderness and, yes, turmoil in life and that they've shared copies uh, with their friends and family because of that. I wanted to ask you, when we're talking about the main character again, why is he heading to Boston? If that's going to give the story away, too much away, uh, but if you could just give a little bit of snippet, why is this guy is a traveler like like you? He starts off in Florida. That's where he grew up. He's in San Francisco when he's 85. But why does he head to Boston? And he's headed there what during in the 1940s? No, actually, the play, the book, the trip itself takes place now, um, in the present. Uh, well, actually, about five years ago in 2008 or so because I wanted to hinge on some events that took place then. But the, the actual trip across the country takes place in this day and time. Um, and he's heading to Boston because there's something there that uh, it's one of the most pivotal points in his life, uh, you know, a uh, quote mistake he made that there is a chance to resurrect. And I can't give too much of that away because uh, it'll give the book away, but I think it'll come as a surprise. Uh, and he's oh. living in San Francisco at the time. So the trip is from San Francisco, sort of a roundabout way where he revisits places from his past. And, again, the characters in the book are really fun. I mean, he he's uh, Pogue is based on an, loosely on an uncle I had, James Ladd, who, uh, after his wife died, started taking these trips across the country by himself, and he was 80 years old. And oh. it just struck me as it would take, he, he lived in a t- small town called Casanova in New York, and he would drive from Casanova all the way across the country to visit his son in Albuquerque, but then he would come on to California where we lived to visit us. And, uh, you know, it just always struck me as that took a lot of guts, and he was a real adventurer. He would turn down a side road just because there was something interesting there. And in the book, Pogue Whithouse, among numerous things, turns down a side road and meets this really interesting character who runs a rattlesnake farm. Um, So lots of things that Uncle Jim would have done, Pogue does do. And it was fun to to take. uh, And Uncle Jim also was a, a decorated war veteran who never talked about it, but it was interesting because you would get glimpses. I remember one time they were uh, going to do a Fourth of July parade in the small town where he lived, Casanova in New York, and he was going to be the Grand Marshal, and he was a very really modest person, but he agreed to do this. So the parade is just about to start, 
and they walk into the car that's going to be the lead car, and there are balloons tied all over it. And he absolutely, a balloon pops, and he refuses to do the parade. He just, I'm not going. I'm not doing it. And his his daughter, my uh, cousin, is trying to convince him, you know, the, the parade's just about to go. Everybody's expecting you to be the Grand Marshal. They've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, and he just adamantly, the balloon pops, and he won't go. And wow. of course, no one has any idea, and he's not saying. And I just think, you know, that those veterans and the veterans today, too, you know, they return from something that we'll never understand. Right. And, uh, and wow. simple things. Like I remember, you know, in the book there's a scene where Pogue returns from World War II and he gets off the ship in San Francisco and um, he's – at dinner and he gets up from dinner and he goes to the bathroom and he, he doesn't come back. And, uh, the person he's with at dinner eventually comes to get him. And they were like, well, what happened? And he, he just, the bathroom was so white. It was so clean. It was so, Mm. you know, just like simple things when you've just spent three years in the jungles of the South Pacific. And that was drawn from a real experience of a real veteran that I found when I was doing my research, but it changes you forever. And that, that episode with Uncle Jim, I never forgot that. He wouldn't say what happened, why that upset him so, but he just folded his arms across his chest. He was a colonel in the Army. You're not going to argue with him. And right. said, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. That kind of leads into my next question. Uh, uh, oddly enough, I wanted to ask you, does does um, the, the main character, does he really believe that life's greatest changes – happens seemingly by chance and not by our own planning. Does he really believe that? No, I think it's a mix. Um, you know, there is a lot of serendipity and, and for better or for worse. But I think in the end, he in the beginning of the book, and this is one of the things I think that makes the book somewhat moving, you know, he almost believes like he's being swept along by the current and there's not much that he can do. I mean, terrible things have happened to him. He loses the you know, his brother, you know, when mm. they're young in, a, in, an, in an awful accident and uh, he feels partly responsible for that. Then he goes off to fight in the war. And, of course, you know, again, I'm not a veteran. I don't understand at all. I would never pretend to understand. But in talking to veterans, you know, it's like the ultimate chaos. I mean, things are totally outside your control to a large degree. So, you know, he comes back feeling that he's just being sort of swept away by the current and, you know, can't really grab a hold of his own life. And then slowly he realizes that, you know, he does have, you know, can obviously to a degree affect things himself. And and that's sort of a moving thing. And he, through these experiences that he has in this cross-country trip and various other things, he realizes that he can take control of his own life and and put some of these regrets behind him. So, yeah, I mean, I've had a blessed life and not too many difficulties, but the few difficulties I've had, I've realized that some of them couldn't be helped. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's things that you can do about them. And we've all had, you know, we all lead, you know, we all have things like that that happen. So I think he's he's an optimist. He realizes he can take control of things. But in the beginning, things are so horrific for him that, you know, sometimes we feel swept away, and he certainly does. Wow. Now, he, he is a very interesting character, 85, traveling across the country, tie, trying to pull it, tie it all together. He knows he doesn't have, you know, much much time right. left. But that said, at the start of the book, anybody reading the start of Together We Jump, 
He seems to have it so together. When I was reading the start, I'm thinking, oh, he's accomplished. He's earned a partial scholarship from the American Banking Institute. He doesn't have the responsibility of caring for a wife or children. He's, like, single and free, yet he appears to be longing for something. And I wanted to ask you, where does this longing come from in him when even at the start he's he's accomplished so much, he's got his whole life out in front of him? What, What causes this longing? Well, in the end, it's a love story, Denise. It's a story of love, and uh, I think uh, the longing is a matter of regret. I mean, I think regret's the sharpest thorn. It's something that never leaves you, and so that's sort of what he's longing for, is to put these regrets to rest. And uh, But it's also a story about love, uh, because I think that is probably the most powerful thing in our lives if we're lucky and he 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 is lucky it takes some time so you know certainly he's accomplished a lot in life he he actually is very successful as uh you know financially and all that sort of thing but uh but these this regret is a thorn and uh the book is about him trying to remove that thorn it's so interesting anybody reading again the start of the book i was just sitting there baffled like what is this guy? It's it's still and I you it's 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 a story you have to read because he seems so like he has it so well put together. He seems like a man who's made smart choices and not like someone who needs needs a second chance. And I know you said it, it said it that we all you know there are things that we all wish we could go back and redo. But sometimes when you look at another person's life from the outside, it just looks so well put together that you think. Right. What would they ever have a regret about? Right. <laughs> you look right. at some well, people and you're like. That's always really. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you look at some people and their life looks so well put together. So when I'm looking, when I was reading the very start of Together We Jump, I'm thinking, what is this longing in this guy? He's got it together. He's like, right. He's, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it is funny because you do. that. I think that's one of the things that's so. I mean, people really intrigue me. And I'm not alone in that. But, yeah, what you see on the surface is rarely what you see beneath the surface. And, you know, somebody who appears successful and perhaps even content uh, may not be. And somebody who looks like they might be struggling and, uh, you know, really having a hard time with life might be a lot more satisfied than you think. You just It's really hard. <laughs> if I've learned anything in my 54 years, it's to never – make assumptions about people because they they forever amaze and surprise and, and that's the beauty of life and, and fiction too because you can take a character who on the surface appears to be one way and uh, you know really surprise the reader with how they actually are you know the secrets we keep uh, to ourselves now we're kind of off the shelf I want to talk about uh, another one of your books where can our listeners get a copy of Together We Jump? You know, it's, uh, we're on just like you, really. We're very, very lucky. You can uh, get it at, on any of the major websites. I mean, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's, if you just type you know, my name in, all the books will come up. Uh, and you can order it online, and you can get it as a paperback, hardback, uh, Kindle, Nook, however you like it. Um, I'm still old-fashioned, so I actually order books I can hold in my hand. 
Uh, but, yeah, it's easy to get. And, again, that's the beauty of, of being a writer these days and, again, something I tell aspiring writers that, the, you know, it used to be my first two books were published via Random House and Shambhala, which are two major publishers. And, uh, you know, I had an agent in New York, and he was a great guy, and he got me my foot in the door, and I got book contracts. And uh, I went the sort of the traditional route. But the traditional route has gotten so difficult keeping it short, they're sort of, um, you know, they're looking for established authors who have or proven money makers, you know, the Dan Browns yeah. and yeah. that sort of thing. So it's really hard, and that's not meant to sound bitter at all, it's just the hard facts, mm-hmm. um, that they're, they're not taking chances on what they call mid-list authors or newcomers as much as they used to be because it, times are tighter. So right. they're investing their money in sure things. But... Um, the good news is that, you know, in the self-publishing world, it's, it's, it makes things so much easier now. There's so many venues to self-publish in, and, and you can get your books. They're available. The only drawback with my books, the self-published ones as opposed to the published ones, is it's, you can't walk into a bookstore in, say, Boston, and it's on the shelf. Whereas mm-hmm. my first two books were on the shelf and bookstores around the country, but that's not a hurdle anymore because you walk into the bookstore and, you know, somebody wants to order your new book and, mm-hmm. and uh, they just tell the clerk and the clerk orders it and two days later, yeah. there it is. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, long walk up, boom, it's, it's, they call you and you go pick it up. So it's great. It's a great time to be a writer because you have so many more opportunities, whereas in the past you would have probably had to have an agent, not easy to get, and then they would have have to have a cachet to get their foot in the door at Random House or a place like that, also not easy to do. So mm-hmm. there are sort of these roadblocks to writers that don't exist so much anymore. The difficult thing, as you know, Denise, is distinguishing yourself from the torrent of books. Oh, yes. <laughs> is everybody yeah. writing a book? Oh, exactly. Everybody's writing and publishing a book. So they, I, I would, that is like, un, you know, with every change, there's the – the upside and the downside, and that's like never right. before. I've never seen so many people publishing books, but yeah, I would agree agree with you on that. You know, that's the down the downside or the challenge. You know, at, with your travels and listening to you, and this character sounds so intriguing. Is um, I'm sure you have learned, like you said, not to take what you see on the surface. I haven't gotten that lesson so fully because, again, I'm, I, you look and you say, this person looks so well put together. They've accomplished this, 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 and that. And then sometimes you really get to know them, and like you said, they're not happy, and somebody you think would be miserable is content. So you would you say you learned that mainly in your travels? And then I want to ask you about another one of your books that actually deals with a part of the country and has to do with your travels. Is that where you got sure, that yeah. from? And that's a strength you can no, put I, in your novels. Yeah, it's. I think the main thing, I, and again, I'm not a good judge of characters. As a matter of fact, I'm often terrible. My wife is really, really good. Sometimes she'll, uh, she seems to be very wise. Some people seem to have that gene, and it's like, you know, that person really is a good person, and that person, I wasn't so keen on them, and, you know, I'll, be, I'll think they're great, and then later on I'll find out they might have done something that I uh, didn't think was all that great. But um, So I'm not the perfect judge of character, but I think because of my childhood, we were always moving, and uh, so I was always forced to be, to make friends, to, 
to reach out to people. And uh, I think as a writer, you have to be that way. I mean, I'm um, as shy as the next person, but I like people, and I I like to get to know them, not in a nosy fashion, but just I, I, I just like people. And I think that was a product of me having to, as a child, you know, landing in Vientiane, Laos, and not knowing a soul, and having to reach out, and then four years later, you know, getting off a plane in Virginia, and you know, going to the high school was not easy, and <laughs> not knowing anybody, and again having to reach out. So I've been that way all my life. I mean, some of my other books off season, I traveled up the whole East Coast by myself. Uh, that's nonfiction, and it's not easy. I visited these small coastal towns, and the tourists were all gone, and. It's not easy to walk into a, a a bar in December of fishermen. You know, it's eight fishermen in the bar, and they've all known each other their whole lives, and you walk in, and you walk up to them, and that's not always the easiest thing in the world to do. But I, on the flip side, I found people are amazing. On off-season, I spent five months traveling up the East Coast, and I think only one person was rude to me. Everybody else was welcoming and you know they were a little reluctant at first some mm-hmm. of them because you're a complete stranger they'd never seen you before especially in the smaller towns and uh but it just reinforced my belief that people are 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 good but i'm not a perfect judge of character but i love i've met so many people and it's amazing what you retain and so you know the people for instance in in the you know together we jump there's opal who's a spirited woman who rescues horses uncle roy who's this rattlesnake wrangling recluse they're they're actually based on people bits and pieces of people that i've met over the years so i'm so glad i extended myself and uh these pieces of character all sort of are are revolving around in my head (laughs) as a writer often you have to be somewhat outgoing especially if you're doing non-fiction books where Mm -hmm. you're actually out in the real world um you know, meeting people and hearing their stories. You know what? You just got into my next question. I wanted to ask you, and I'm listening to you, and I'm like, he he keeps leading. I think I'm talking too much. That's what I think. No, you're not. I think there's just when you're saying the the the, the happenstance. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Now, you, you we talked before, and I think it's exciting what you did with off season discovering America on Winter Shore. When and why did you why did you decide to do that and and write the book? What 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 inspired you to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was working for the Los Angeles Times part time, um, and uh, all the news and I we get the Times and you know everybody gets or a lot of people get a daily paper and watch the news and all the news seemed to be bad, <laughs> you know, kind of negative and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's what newspapers do, and I'm not putting them down. I mean, that's their job to report the the hard news, and often it's it's not good. Uh, you know, you just have to pick up today's paper to find that out. But I just remember thinking that there's, and also a lot of uh, you see a lot of changes in all our towns, and everything starts to look the same. There's the the Home Depot and the, all the box stores, and you could fall. I had somebody once tell me, you know, you could fall asleep in a traffic light, and 80% of America and wake up and not know where you are because there's sort of this homogenization of the country, mm-hmm. you know. 
But I don't believe that. Uh, I, I do believe that that's happening, but I, this country, I think, it still has this amazing stamp of individualism. And So anyhow, the idea was I was going to travel up the East Coast in winter and visit these small towns that uh, you know, had not, that still have this incredible individual stamp and are filled with characters and places that you really haven't heard of. I mean, I made an attempt to avoid the bigger spots along the East Coast. Can, and, uh, you know, can I ask Santa you Myrtle just, Beach, I was in Murals Inlet, South Carolina, little tiny places, and, and consequently I met these amazing cast of characters. And it's a real feel-good book because the people I met and the things they did and the things we experienced and the way they opened up to me, it just reconfirmed my faith in people, not just Americans, but, but you know, it was Americans that I was, uh, you know, I was traveling up the east coast of this country, but it just reaffirmed my faith in, in people. It's just a real feel-good book. And I didn't know what to expect. You know, I spent five months driving up the east coast in our van sleeping in the back a lot of times on the famous author tour. Um, you know, you roll into a town of 300 people. Within five minutes, everybody knows you're there. Um, wow, yeah. And, you know, did you do it, this it was for, Did you do this as a writing assignment for a magazine, or you just took off on your own? You know, I actually uh, had visited numerous places on the East Coast for magazine assignments, but this particular book, uh, I had an agent, Stuart Bernstein, in New York, who was terrific. I put together a book proposal. He took it to uh, Random House and a wonderful, wonderful woman named Carrie Thornton, who was an editor at Random House, liked the idea. She's, it's a lot about the beach and the ocean, and she was sort of a beach and ocean person. So she took a chance. I mean, I just sent her a proposal, and they, they gave me the book assignment. And it was sort of funny, wow. Denise, because here's what you're up against, and you know this as well as I do, but other people who might be aspiring writers don't. Um, Everybody is going to tell you no every step along the way. I mean, when I first started writing people, magazine writing, people said, you can't do it. You're not going to be able to make a living doing it. So that worked out okay. And then people, then I decided, well, okay, I want to write a book. And people are like, no, magazine writers can't write books. So Boston uh, <laughs> season was a Barnes & Noble Great New Writers selection. It got a numer- several other awards. And I thought, okay, I can, a, a book is just like a long magazine article. I'm a pretty simple guy. And then the next thing is I want to write fiction. And it's like, no, no, uh, nonfiction <laughs> writers can't write fiction. So everywhere along the line it was no. But the funny thing with Off Season was uh, Carrie – you had seen my magazine writing because we sent her a lot of clips, but of course, you know, she had understandable uh, concerns about whether I could write a book because I never had. So mm-hmm. what happened was I, I drove across the country. I started in Florida, and I, uh, you know, I, I traveled through Florida, and then I wrote the first chapter from the road because she wanted to see a chapter to see, okay, what what can I expect. So I wrote that chapter, uh, you know, I holed up in a friend's home for two weeks and wrote that chapter and sent it to Carrie in New York, and then I kept traveling. And uh, I get the call from Carrie about a week later, and I'm in a laundromat in South Carolina, and uh, I get the call, and Carrie says, we need to talk. And as soon as she says that, the woman next to me, her machine goes bad and it starts to overflow and all her clothes are coming out and she's screaming <laughs> and yelling and, and Carrie's talking and I can't hear what she's saying. I mean, it was so funny. So I ran outside and Carrie called me back and, 
and it turns out she loved the first chapter, but it wow. was just it's interesting, and so we were off and running. But it's interesting for writers. Again, I don't know what it is because I, I do like people. I think they're good, but people will put up roadblocks, especially for writers. Yeah. Like, you know, first of all, you can't do it. It's too difficult. And then second, then, then even after that, each genre is like supposedly vastly different. And they are different. Mm-hmm. Dialogue is difficult, you know. Making up dialogue for fiction is a difficult thing to do, but um, it's still writing, you know. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we should make it too complicated. And right. sometimes I think we do, and then people get so intimidated they're afraid to type their name on a page, much less a sentence. <laughs> so it's too bad, yeah. yeah. I want to ask you before we move on, and we, 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 we've got about ten minutes left, what are some? tell us some of the towns you visit and you talk about in off-season discovering America on winter shore. What are some of the, the small towns you stopped in? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, I made a, a real attempt to uh, avoid the bigger towns because even in winter, and I traveled from, uh, you know, Key West up to Lebec, Maine, so I, I, I hit the whole East Coast, and I did it in winter because that's when uh, people, you know, leave. The tourists are gone, and it's just the locals. So I think, uh, yeah, they were Valona, Georgia, little town in Georgia where I spent time with a shrimper, um, Murals Inlet, South Carolina, which is this little town. I mean, places have grown since I've gone through, which is also interesting to see. Um, but it's just to the south of Myrtle Beach, and it, it's a hard, you know, was when I went through sort of a, you know, a fisherman's town. It was still the real deal. And I spent time with a, well, a number of interesting people, but one of them, Cotton, uh, made such an impression. He worked at the fish packing plant, and he would count the fish as they came down the conveyor belt. They'd take them off the boat, and they'd put them in these crates. And I forget exactly how much crate each crate had to weigh, Denise, like 80 pounds. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the cast of characters that I ran into. He was like Rain Man. He was like this idiot savant, an amazing guy. He could see the fish come down, and they'd start putting them in the crates, and he'd say, stop. And then they'd weigh it, and it would be like, this crate had to be 80 pounds. It would be like 79.645. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wow. was like right on every time. So any other wow. character, and together we jumped named Cotton, sort of in honor of him. But then I also visited the Outer Banks in North Carolina, a little uh, island called Ocracoke, which is an uh, amazingly beautiful, great, uh, you know, amazing town that really treated me well. Uh, Tangier, which is this amazing island in the Chesapeake Bay, that uh, they speak this sort of Shakespearean English. I mean, it's sort of, they sort oh. of kept to themselves to a degree. So they're actually, it's almost indecipherable. You can't understand what they're saying. But uh, it's a really fascinating place. And I, I spent time with the, the, the town's only sheriff. And it was really interesting because we're talking about people who, whose families run like six generations deep all have lived together for six generations on this little island, and he's the policeman, right? And he's mm-hmm. mostly policing the fishermen and the crabbers to make sure they don't break any laws. So he he had to basically bust his uncles and his his cousins and his friends, and which resulted wow. in a sort of solitary existence. But as I was uh, leaving Tangier after the week I spent there, I was talking to the boatman who was taking me back across to the mainland, and he looked at me and he goes, I told him what I was doing and that I'd spend time with Tim Marshall, and he looked at me for a long time, and then he said, Tim's far, which means Tim's fair. 
And that's ah. what he was. He never treated, you know, he didn't treat anybody specially. If you broke the law, he broke your back. If you <laughs> maintained the law, he, he didn't bother you. And, you know, whereas in a place where you grew up and it was all family, you could get yes. yourself in a real quagmire. So, anyhow, it's really interesting. And then uh, uh, Montauk, Long Island, uh, Cape Cod, uh, little towns in Maine, a uh, town called Strathmere in New Jersey, which is wants to stay so under the radar that they don't even put their name on the water tower. I mean, <laughs> it's fun. So anyhow, it was all these little towns and just amazing, amazing people like Tim Marshall on Tangier that really, I think the best thing about writing, Denise, and you may, you may realize this too, but for me the best thing about writing are the people that you meet and you mm-hmm. take a little piece of them, not everyone, obviously, but a little piece of them with you, people who've ins- who are inspirational or, you know, I have little pieces of all these people I've met over the past 30 years that, that inspired me. And, uh, you know, Tim Marshall was one of them. He, he, he was a square lawman who, who had to do difficult things, and, and he walked the straight line despite the fact it would have been a lot easier to just turn his back. And, you know, you bust a crabber, it could take away their winter livelihood, and uh, mm-hmm. you know. But he, you know, he's like, okay, you know, you 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 take only the right size crabs, and I won't bother you. But if you break the law, you can expect me to penalize you for it. Wow, you making me want you know? to jump in a van and go traveling. Well, you know what? It was a great, great experience, and I would. Oh I mean, gosh. it's not easy. Yeah, it, it, to see this country and to see the small, tucked-away places that we don't usually get to see. I mean, a lot of times people will say, oh, you're a travel writer, where's your favorite place? And they're usually expecting some exotic, faraway South yeah, Pacific yeah. island. And they're nice, but this country is, is unbelievable. And I've only seen the tip of the iceberg, but if off-season convinced me of anything, it's the people and the places in this country. It's, oh, my God, they're, they'll just wow. throw you back. Incredible. Yeah, when yeah. you t- when you stop rushing and take your time to really get to know people, a lot of time we rush so much. Before we we got about seven minutes left, I definitely wanted our off the shelf listeners who are listening to you, hearing your backstory that you grew up, your family traveling, and so they might say, well, he's got that background, so he's got like a head start on me. But what advice would you give to our off the shelf listeners who really, really, really want to get started writing? travel articles for magazines and websites. Do you have any tips and advice you can share with them that they can use to take practical steps to get started? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, don't think that because you're not a traveler, you can't write uh, about travel um, because that's not true. Uh, You don't need to worry about that at all. I mean, I, I had that advantage, but really it's all about the writing. So if you're a good writer, um, that's what you need to be. Uh, I think, to be honest, travel writing is probably the hardest thing to crack at the beginning because that's what everybody wants to do. So I think I would, my advice would be, if you're an aspiring writer, start small. And that doesn't, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I started for a local weekly, and it's a great way to hone your craft and, and to get published. And you need to have published clips when you go to a larger magazine. They want to see your work. They want to see your published work. They don't want to see... You know, something that you, you know, that wrote that's in your top desk drawer. Unless it's brilliant, then that'll work. But 
Uh, mm-hmm. So you need to start small, and, and there's so many opportunities for that. You know, there's weekly newspapers and that sort of thing everywhere, and I'm not even familiar, I'm embarrassed to say, but with the web, but I'm sure there's a million opportunities there. And then you build sort of a portfolio, and then you have these clips, and then you approach the next magazine, and you say, I have this great idea to go visit this tiny town in South Carolina where, you know, America still exists, and there's this amazing cast of characters, and and then here's my clips, and so then the editor gets to see, okay, look, not only do they have a well-written uh, query idea, but they also have experience. So mm-hmm. I think the big thing would be to, to start small and then persevere. It, it's not easy, but it's, it's no more difficult than any other job. Uh, people make it out to be uh, you know, impossible to be a writer, but I think if you persevere, and you have to be good, you have to be good. I mean, you get better. I look at the things I wrote 25 years ago, and, and uh, I think I'm better now. <laughs> so and hopefully I'll be better 25 years from now. But I think yeah. I started out with a certain level of, of ability. And if you don't have that, then it's going to be hard. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of people, you don't need a specific background. There's a lot of people who are good writers. So persevere, start small, and believe in yourself because you're going to get Can't, rejected. Can somebody um, – who's blogging, like maybe travel, they travel, they take pictures, they do blogging, could that help somebody get started working for Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it's funny. The blogging world, it's new to me, but I have a, I write a column for a KCET out here. It's a weekly column, and, and it's amazing the response that you get to those columns. A lot of people see those. And, and if your readers are writing blogs and they're good, word will spread and eventually an editor will see it. And that's what you want. And, uh, you know, initially when I first started magazine writing, I was writing for smaller magazines. Eventually some of the mag- editors of larger magazines saw the smaller pieces and said, hey, this is pretty good. And they, they actually once or twice contacted me. Not often. You usually have to go to them. But now I think the world has changed so much and the blog is terrific. Yeah, so I would... I would craft that blog as if you're writing it for National Geographic because an editor from National Geographic might read that blog. So mm. make every word count. And that's not meant to put pressure on you. It's just meant to say be as good as you can be every single time because nowadays you put something up on the web, who knows yeah. who's going to Yeah. That, that is opportunity. So yeah, that is that is so true, and I think it's so important what you said. You have to make every word count, because, like you said, you don't know who is going to be reading your material. Before we before we close, can you let our listeners know where they can get copies of? And we didn't discuss fog, but if you could let people know the off season fog. Together we jump. Can you let us know again, our off the shelf listeners, where they can get copies of your book? Sure. Probably the easiest way is uh, that makes it hard to forget is just go to Amazon. And if you uh, just type uh, my name in, and it's uh, K-E-N, and then the last name, it's McAlpine. It's M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E. All the books will come up. Um, and, yeah, you can read a synopsis. You can read the reader reviews and order the book online, and you can get it in any way, shape, or form you want. The old-fashioned hold in your hand or the Kindle, uh, whatever. So they're, they're easy to get. And, Denise, while I have 20 seconds, I want to thank you for all you do for, for readers and writers. I mean, without this sort of thing, the words don't get out. And uh, I personally am incredibly grateful, but it's also just 
it's just nice that you do this because it is about spreading, I think, mostly the joy of reading and writing, not my books, but just books and words in general. So thanks. Oh, you're very welcome, and we're so happy to have you on again. Ken, always enjoy you. And remember, Ken McAlpine, together we jump, together we jump, Ken McAlpine. And you can also go to his website, KenMacAlpine.com and uh, check out more of his books and go over to Amazon and get a copy of it and learn more about Pog, the main character in Together We Jump, who's very, very intriguing. As I, as I always tell you, our off-the-shelf listeners, I thank you, thank you for being here with us today. Please come back next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City time. Tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, book lovers everywhere to tune in to Off the Shelf Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. As I always tell you, you are so incredible. You are amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Thank you, thank you, Ken. I'll shoot you an email, Ken. Bye. Uh, for you're now. the best, Denise. Thanks for being thank so you. kind and being such a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. Bye for now, everybody. <laughs>